0: So the Buddha, um, the Buddha, as you may know, Buddha means awakened one. The, uh, the Buddha didn't take any other title than um, being awake. Uh, that's what he characterized himself as, and that's what others of his time, the historical Buddha characterized him as too. So I think that's a very interesting uh Use of I think it's a very interesting term to call someone or oneself. So what it brings up for me is, um, well, what did what did the Buddha awake from, and what did he awake to? Um, and in um, a phrase I like from a from a Buddhist practitioner and contemporary scholar and historian is that. He awoke from the sleep of existential delusion, which kind of is a, encapsulates a lot, but what does that mean? Um, well, he left behind this record uh, in the Four Noble Truths that that in a way explains what that means. Um, um, they're called noble in a sense because they refer to uh, the Dharma or the Dhamma, the... Uh, the truth is a is a translation of that term Dharma or Dharma, or reality, the kind of ultimate reality that that the ground reality that's that that holds all of all of this that goes on that holds our ah. lives really so I'd like to um try to go through these. This will just be hitting the highlights, huh because, of course, there's 2,500 years behind these Four Noble Truths of of, of human interaction with them and they're, they're very deep and profound. And, and one thing that makes them deep and profound, in my view, is that is that they are so concise that they're encapsulated in this really condensed form. Um, but, of course, one can say a lot. There's a lot to say about them. In fact, they're... Another thing that my personal take that makes them noble is that, um, is that they merit, uh, they merit um, attention in our lives. A lifetimes we can spend our lives uh, looking at these, living the rest of our lives too. We don't have to devote exclusively t- just to the noble truths, but they can become a piece with our lives in whatever we do. So, oh. um. it's uh, I think it's worth remembering that what the Buddha awoke to was a present moment reality experience of what these truths are. This was his this was his uh, one of his real claims that kind of set him apart from other. Um, seekers and philosophers of his time, of, of which there were many. And some of these truths, as you'll recognize, apply, uh, th- they're not exclusive to the Buddha or to Buddhism, that humankind has been engaged with these questions um, about what it is to be alive and how to live our lives um, from ever since we have historical records in every culture. Um, but the Buddha did have some particular takes on it that, uh, that were quite distinguished. And one of them was that it's uh, we that he awoke and saw that each human being had the capacity to awake to these truths in a in the present moment in present moment experience. That's why we spend so much time meditating in the present moment and being with our breath or whatever our present moment experience is. Um, another word I think that helps me frame these truths. Um These ways of understanding our human nature is um, to call them the four noble practices in a way, because they contain within them an invitation to really take them into our lives and embody them and live them. Uh, they're not some sort of um, some sort of metaphysical or um, I actually, I think I've got it. Thanks, Jim. Um, something kind of like physics, you know, that we can understand and, and get, and or maybe physics isn't a good example. <laughs> That's, we don't spend too much of our time with physics, but um, they're more—they're more like practices and skills. Or they—they call—they have—they offer that. They have that invitation. So. Uh, the first truth is that there, that human, the human condition is composed of. Uh, there's a lot of it is stress and suffering and anguish. That's just part of our lives. That's the way things are set up uh, from birth through our lives to death. Um, but that um, and and along with that is that we're not able to control um, these kind of aspects. Um, and another part of that first truth is that uh, we can add more anguish and stress and suffering by um, on top of what, what's just there and part of human nature. That's really the first noble truth is what we add to it. And that's a term that you might hear that a lot in if you start to look into this in Pali, it's called dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. Um, so we bring we bring an extra dimension. is the first noble truth of this of anguish or stress to to what already exists that we can't control in our lives. Uh, and that was kind of well known at. In philosophical systems during the Buddhist time. So then, there's um, through that through that first truth, um, the, the Buddha saw quite clearly. It seems to me that that this. That knowing this, that we bring something to it, is is we needed an action plan. We needed some way to get, you know, to see how we can hold that uh, suffering, how we can be with that, how we might even, how we might even uh, shift our understanding of it or widen our understanding of it. Um, so if he's famous for uh, this. This phrase, he said, um, "I teach one thing and one thing only: suffering and the end of suffering." And the Four Noble Truths kind of point to the practices that show us what our suffering is on deep levels, and also how we might end it. And and the second truth is uh, the one that says there are causes for the suffering that underlie this kind of suffering that we bring to our life experiences as human beings. Um, and craving or clinging is kind of the base cause. But that has many that has many different manifestations, but the most important and, and frequently encapsulated in, uh, in the Buddhist texts are greed, hatred and delusion. Um, craving and clinging in this second noble truth is understood not only to be craving in the sense of addiction, of holding something to you, but also also rejecting things, pushing things away. That's also a form of clinging uh, in the second noble truth. And the origin, well, where does this craving come from? The origin of this craving is rooted in our ignorance, of our impermanent self nature. And so these are two other key kind of insights that the Buddha himself brought to to things that people were discussing in Hindu philosophy and other philosophies as well. Our impermanent nature and um, these are called anicca or impermanence and anatta. Uh, the fact that we don't have an abiding self that is like a super self, like in Hindu philosophy of the Atman, um, but that everything is a process in a way. We could use that term terminology in today's language, that it's all flowing and going on and of course we have, we have a self and, and uh, an individuality and a personality. Um, but, but there's nothing... Uh, that's a process that exists within certain boundaries of time and under certain conditions. But that is constantly changing. Uh, it comes into being. It changes constantly throughout its process. And then it goes out of material, physical being anyway. Um, So the Buddha wasn't a metaphysician. He didn't. uh, He said, "This is what I've seen: that there is no permanent self or soul that we that we can identify with." So, in the third noble truth, he um, he brings the good news, um, which is that the suffering and and anguish, this craving. Uh, clinging, these delusions can exist, that we have choices that we can make um, in our lives as human beings. We can let them go. We can let our craving go, and we can dispel our ignorance. And this is another real implicit call to action. The call to action, it kind of ups the ante here. The stakes get, you know... Higher and maybe more interesting. Oh, okay. Well, I know suffering, uh, and I can even kind of I could I could entertain that uh, e- theoretically, at least, that um, the cause of suffering is is my craving and cl- clinging. Um, but well, where does that leave me? You know. But the possibility of of letting it go makes it interesting for us. So, the fourth noble truth is uh, also called the the eightfold middle path, because the fourth noble truth has has eight parts to it, um, or the middle way, um, and this is kind of the the real the, the kind of the nitty gritty of practice descriptions of how we might go about um, seeing our seeing what causes what causes us suffering, and all other beings not not just individually but all other human beings, um, and what we might how we can actually go about kind of dismantling uh, this suffering deconditioning ourselves from these conditioned ways we have of being in the world. So the specific steps, the, um, the, 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 they're presented in, in a certain order and that it varies a little bit tradition to tradition but um i like to look at them and this is an ancient metaphor too as a, as kind of a, a wheel and that that works really well for me with the hub so it's not like you follow the list and go you do the first noble truth and then the second noble truth and then you know although you you can do it that way but really you, you can enter at any place at, at any time wherever you are in your present moment experience in any one of these can be a path, an avenue into seeing deeply into um, what your own experience is in that moment, and how and how you can make choices about uh, acting skillfully and wisely or not. So, if there the the eight parts would be around the hub of the uh, um, uh, the perimeter of the wheel, and they all lead back into the hub, the the center, and that's where you, they all connect with one another. So you can even jump around from the first one uh, in this tradition is uh, clear seeing and comprehension or right view. And and the last one is right uh, concentration. Um, But you can connect those two up without going through the intermediaries necessarily. In fact, that that happens. So the first one... um, clear seeing and clear comprehension, also translated as right view or right understanding. So it's it's about seeing our choices, clearly seeing um, what choices we have in the moment in our lives. And it's also on, um, on another level, uh, knowing for ourselves directly and experientially what reality is, what the deepest realities are um, the second um, the second noble truth uh, or part of the Eightfold Path in the in the fourth noble Truth, is clear purpose or or right resolve or right intention and that's about a conscious intention to live with awareness to to be awake to our lives, um, to bring a kind of an awakeness and alertness to our lives. And also on another level, it's uh, an alignment with the deep truth of things as we have known and experienced them for ourselves. I keep coming back to that because for me that's very fundamental to, um, to the Buddhist path. In in many times throughout Buddhist discourses, the Buddha said things like, um, "Know this for yourself." In his last uh, talk before he died, gathered all his um, all the people who who were interested in him and coming to his teachings around him, and and he knew he was dying, and so did they, and they were all distraught, and some of them asked the question, "Well." What are we going to do when you're not here? You know, We need some guidance. And he said, you have all the guidance you need uh, within this body. Um, be an island unto yourself. Using these metaphors that were common of the, at the time, the, uh, the world of delusion is called samsara in, um, of conditioning. Is, and delusion is called samsara in Sanskrit. And, and that's the way the world was understood, um, that, that, there, that mostly we live on this level where we seem surrounded by um, suffering and with, from within, from without, uh, because we, we just haven't tapped in yet to that more fundamental ground. So be an island unto yourself. He also used the metaphor of being uh, a lamp, a light unto yourself. Uh, each of us can do that according to what the Buddha offered to us so um, within our own experience and then the the uh, the third noble truth is clear speech or right speech um, and this is a uh, this is one that's um, as Westerners we find this one sometimes one of the most tricky because we're just used to talking and not thinking too much about our speech. We know we know some things. A general kind of morality, or, or, or is um, is um, abstention from lying, for example. But but there's also the positive side of that: is speaking what we know to be true. In other words, getting in touch with with ourselves at that moment and speaking just what we know to be true and being silent if we don't really know it to be true. And it doesn't mean um, like not like always making unkind remarks or or, or being sort of insensitive to others. Uh, It's not that kind of uh, brusque truth like, oh, you have to tell the truth always. It's... it's, um, in fact, it, the Buddhist path is uh, is very situational, one could say, or I'll go ahead and say, using those um, to be present for what the situation is now and to see what's required. Um, so, but, the, but it's interesting that, that the Buddha put a lot of emphasis on this right speech. Um, telling the truth and and abstaining from slander and abusing others and gossip uh, just sort of mean hearted stuff in other words um... I want to back up a little bit and and say that historically, before the um, the eightfold path, there's the Dhammapada, which is uh, a, a short collection of of verses, of very very succinct teachings of the Buddha or sayings of the Buddha that came about uh, even before the Noble Eightfold Path, according to the the scholars that I've heard and studied, and um, and, and this points to some, a cluster of these, uh, these parts of the eightfold path that we're talking about now, such as um, clear speech and right speech. He says in that in the Dhammapada, to do no evil, to cultivate good, to purify one's heart and mind. This is the teaching and understanding of the awakened ones. So about how we can be in the world um, to refrain from doing evil. Of course, all that that it, that implies that that we can recognize what doing evil or unskillful or harmful things are and to know what cultivating good is and to know how to purify one's heart and mind. But purification, the Buddhists generally mean... Um, uh, uh, allowing ourselves to see, um, to let go of the conditioning that makes us see things in terms of dualities and opposites, and seeing the uh, our true nature, which is which is pure, which is un, um, unstained, according to ancient kind of metaphors. For me, this kind of purification is discovering who we are most completely. We, we each have our own story and personality and individual body, and that's uh, that's a great gift of meditation, which is another one of the parts of the Eightfold Path. Which we're going to move on to. The fourth... Um, The fourth part of the path is wise action or right action. So once again, recognizing what that is. It's also recognizing the interrelatedness of of beings. And then when we do that, we can live according to a natural law that is compassion. And the way that manifests itself is uh, in, we, we naturally don't want to kill or take life, and we don't want to steal. Uh, we don't want to engage in sexual misconduct, um, and we want to keep the we want to keep the clarity of our minds and the purity of our minds, and so that we don't intoxicate ourselves. Huh. Then there's wise livelihood and right livelihood um, or right livelihood and that's choosing our work in this world the best we can um, with the intention to be of benefit to ourselves and others and it's dealing honorably with other beings uh, when we work together with them and I personally think this one's not so easy in the complicated world we live in because we don't see all the ramifications of what we do. Um, But we do the best we can. Uh, All of these um, truths are still rooted in um, what we can bring to them and how we can make them our practices is to really pay attention to our intention. If we're doing the best we can, that's... uh, that's good. They're not they're not absolutes, and they're not um, sort of enshrined out there that we um, that we aspire to, but we never really think we will attain. In fact, one of my teachers says they're all impossible. There's no way that you can not really kill anything. Being alive um, means being, you know, going through that cycle of birth and death. That's what that's what it's part of. So it's not an idealistic and metaphysical kind of practice we're talking about here. It's just bringing our best intentions to being awake and present um, for our experience. And then that lets us see how to engage in wise action and right livelihood. Then um, there's wise use of energy or wise effort or right effort. Uh, and that's a kind of a perseverance, uh, keeping coming back to uh, cultivating skillful states and letting go of, of unskillful or harmful uh, ways of being or states of mind. So that kind of perseverance that we bring to just being with our breath again and again um, can be with everything again and again, even when it's difficult. Um you no know, Buddhism is called um the middle way in this particularly this section. Um because uh, the Buddha came to this after trying a lot of really extreme uh practices that were on going on when he was alive. Um and said this this is not the way and in, including practices of extreme asceticism where he almost starved himself to death and, and practices of extreme, um, extreme kind of exploration of very high meditative states uh, where he got quite blissful and kind of blissed out kind of states. Um, and he, he realized that, he came to the understanding uh, that those were not the deepest truth. Um, I said, well, I'm going to try again. <laughs> and, uh, and that's when, he, uh, when the Four Noble Truths kind of crystallized and came to him. Um, and the last one with this Eightfold Path came as the Middle Way. So being right where we are in our present mind body, um, being with that, rather than seeing these as something out there. Um. Then the seventh noble truth is um, clear attention or right mindfulness. Now mindfulness is a very popular term in this tradition of vipassana and insight. And it's about our awareness and our attention and bringing that to our whole being, our mind and our body, uh, as best we can in every moment all of our senses whatever sense doors coming up for us what we hear what we smell what we taste what goes on in our minds and it's also holding right um this right mindfulness and clear attention is also holding what comes to us in a uh, within a non-judgmental way so that we're not identified with it or clinging to it, in other words. And then the last part of this um, Noble Eightfold Path is clear concentration or right concentration. And that's also what we do when we just keep coming back to our breath uh, or whatever our meditation is at any given time. So we focus our awareness We collect our mind and unify our mind. Uh, Because the Buddha also recognized that the mind was the key factor here. The mind is kind of the way in to to all of it. That's where the Dhammapada starts out. Uh, Our life is shaped by our mind. Hmm. So clear concentration and right concentration we unify our minds. We bring our, our minds back to uh, to the ground of, of unity and stillness. And we discern things as they are at the deepest levels then, or we have that possibility. So... I want to end by saying how I think this is such it's a really practical path and um, it's we, could, we begin to know ourselves through cultivating this path through through meditation and we know our own stress and our clinging and, and we also know what's under it or above it or around it we also get in a sense which is why I think we're all here because we know there's something there we know it's not just all, uh, in the words of one poet, uh, "There's more to life than money, fame, and bites of roasted <coughs> meat." And we kind of know that that's that's true, and we want to find out ha- how we can really express that and live that and be that. Um, so these these practices are uh, are real great hopes to us, I think. We we can we meet our unhappiness, our anger, our dissatisfaction, with clear comprehension, with right understanding. Um, we don't cling to them. We don't we um, we know we don't have to hold on to them, to identify them. Um, we forget our biases, our conditioning towards our own uh, sorrow or anger, or even our own joy. We know. Oh this is here it's interesting just like our breath which refreshes us and sustains us oh what's this this is this is kind of interesting what is this thing called breath you know we can we can even be aware of our most our biggest screw ups our our most horrible things uh the horrible things that others have done to us that we've done to others um uh, the way it is in the world is just awful sometimes. Uh, and yet we can, we can by following these practices, come to an understanding of how to be with that and hold that with a peaceful heart, as one of my teachers says. You know, it's a little bit like a magic trick sometimes. It's like you're watching the show, and where did all the rabbits come from? I don't know, but they're there, they're all there, they're all part of it. And we can see that and when we, when we practice right mindfulness, right concentration, we can really see deeply for ourselves where things appear, how they appear. And we can follow this middle way just as we are where we are. We can start at any time, any moment, is an access point Um, any moment.